Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Johnny Carson once interviewed Betty Davis and asked if she had any advice for young starlets wanting to get ahead in Hollywood. She suggested take Fountain. Fountain Avenue runs parallel to Santa Monica and Sunset Boulevards in Hollywood and is often used to avoid the heavier traffic. And isn't that what we're all after? A smooth run, no holdups, not only in traffic, but also in life. How do people handle those holdups, the rejections? How do they create a life in the entertainment capital of the world? How do they identify and express their uniqueness in a place where hundreds of thousands are hoping to do the same? Welcome to Take Fountain. Compelling stories from passionate people who've made it, are making it, in Hollywood. Writers, comedians, actors, filmmakers. I'll talk to anyone with a story to tell. Welcome to Take Fountain, a podcast of passionate people working on their dreams. Compelling stories from Hollywood. Your host, Ella James. My guest today on Take Fountain is Mark Thelner Erez, actor, fabulous creative, wonderful dad, and all round great guy. That's kind of like what you'll have in your tombstone, I guess. I, would, I hope. Yeah. One would hope. Tell me a little bit about, about you. Um, so yeah, my name is Mark Fellner Erez. I was born Mark Fellner, um, and I got married uh, to to my wife, Anat Erez. And uh, when we got married, I took her name at the end of mine. She took my name at the end of hers. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's the one time as a man I think you can actually do it. And it was such a surprise when we sat down and signed signed the paper, and it said uh, spouses new name, wife's new name, husband, or whatever it is, partner one, partner two, I don't know what it was in New York when we did it, but they said, what's your uh, maiden name, or what's your original name, and then what's your new name? And I was like, oh, wow, I can change my name right now to anything I want, and I didn't expect it, so I I, I wanted to go with uh, Bubblegum Joe. Mm -hmm. I wanted to name myself Bubblegum Joe, because I could, and just to do it. People could still call me Mark if they wanted to. But uh, then I decided it would be more in line with my kind of um, philosophy. If I kept my family name as the primary one, and Anat felt the same about her, so she kept her, her family name as the primary one, and then we added the other person's name to our last name at the end. So she's hyphen Fellner, and I'm Fellner Arez, one word. But my stage name is Fellner, because Fellner Arez is almost impossible to write down. F-E-L-L-E-R-E-Z. Doesn't sound easy. It would just confuse people. Yeah, yeah, it does every time. So you're 36. You left 36. college how many years ago? I graduated from undergrad at UCLA in 2000 and, uh, 2003 because I stayed on for an extra 
semester or year, and then I got a graduate degree also from UCLA in 2004. It was a one-year master's program, and um, my undergrad was in um, acting uh, with focus and specialization on musical theater performance, and um, my graduate degree was in, it was a master of arts in um, um, directing for theater, film, and experimental media. So armed with all of this fabulous education, you've now been in the marketplace for 13 years. Yeah. How's that panned out? Um, it, it's been interesting. I mean, you know, going from being an actor to a director and wanting to still be both. And now since then, I've also become a writer um, and a producer. Um, so in terms of titles, I've gotten a lot more and like had to make new and different business cards and that was great. Uh, but sort of the same thing that's always given me a problem is that I'm in, in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm a, like a Renaissance man or whatever, uh, where you have so many things that you love to do. I love to paint, um, and I love to play music and I love to act and I love to direct and I love to write and I love to do all this, but you're going up against people who are able to just focus on dance. So they take four dance classes a week and to think that you're going to compete against them in a dance audition is crazy. And so it's kept me at a, at a little bit of a disadvantage. Like I got, I just kept getting involved with different things. Right after I graduated, I was very focused on directing and I had the wonderful opportunity to, uh, I, in undergrad, I directed a, a, a stage production of Fahrenheit 451 with a, a producer buddy of mine who's amazing. And uh, it was a wild success, I think, it, because we were in college because we had sort of deep, deep pockets, which we wouldn't have had in the theater world outside of that ever. Um, but we had three video screens projecting things with live uh, media feeds and things like that, people interacting with screens and all sorts of amazing things. Ray Bradbury, the author himself, came and saw the show and loved it, and I became a director in his Pandemonium Theater Company, which was wonderful for me, like very rewarding. Um, and I was 24 at the time, 22 or something, and worked for him for a few years and I assisted him, we edited scripts, we um, rewrote things, adapted books to plays, and then we'd have little 50 audience member performances uh, where we'd basically do staged readings and then we'd get feedback and then we'd edit the script. It was amazing, he was like my hero and um, I learned an awful lot of, from him. And that paid my bills, so that was really nice. Um, and then after that, um, after Bush, <laughs> I, I wanted to leave. I'd, I just had to at least leave LA. I got very tired of being in Los Angeles, so I moved to New York, and that was really fun and rewarding to kind of jump on and do that. And I auditioned for Broadway, and I taught acting out there. So being a performer and a teacher and a director paid my bills again, and that was really nice. It was New York, and I was living in the city, so it was expensive, so I also worked at an antique factory, uh, antique uh, gallery and uh, a, a doggy daycare place, and did whatever I could to pay the bills, too. Uh, but then from New York, I moved to the Caribbean, um, or the Caribbean, I can't even remember what's right. Um, and uh, I directed theater and taught um, kids and adults acting for a small community theater there for a couple of years. And so all of those were super rewarding things, paid my bills throughout. I was a young single guy and that got me to, I got married in New York to my wife um, and we moved 
almost right away down to the Caribbean and we were there for a couple of years. And all of them were wonderful and all of it taught me that I could come back to LA and so I did. And then I jumped back into trying to be an actor. Um, and then writing has kind of snuck up in there and through writing I've become a producer. And, and it's great, I've almost always had to have a day job and uh, I've almost always had to find a balance in it. Um, but many of these things, now I'm also doing castings I'm doing other things that, that pay, pay the bills that I'm working in the industry and it's great, but it, you know, I used to be doing 20 plays a year. I'd be doing two or three at a time, sometimes rehearsing one, performing one, and auditioning for one that I get cast in, and so I'm standing by for the next production. And so that was so exciting and so rewarding, but I can't, I've never been able to really pay my bills as a theater actor in LA, even though I have so much training in that and I've gotten to even work professionally, but to be a professional theater actor in L.A., you have to work at one of three theaters, basically, to have a chance to pay your bills. Does the level of frustration on the fact that it doesn't support you ever start to tip the balance of you thinking, can I keep doing this? Yeah, all the time. All the time. And I, and I think, too, like, I grew up in Chico, California, um, and that's where I got my passion for theater. I had a great... Uh, high school drama teacher Salvatrano and Leslie Leslie uh, Howard blew me away, and and I worked at a little opera the opera house, um, City Light Opera, and all the people there were so amazing, and the kids who came out of there were so amazing, um, and so I think why wouldn't I go move to a place like Portland, Oregon, which is beautiful and more affordable, so and why, I could do plays. Why wouldn't you? Why am I not? I think I'm hoping that I won't have to struggle moving forward, that I will get enough credits and enough opportunities and enough connections and have built up my resume um, that people will pay me and I can buy a house here and live that same life. In L.A.? In L.A. with, with, a, higher, with a higher standard. You know, when I was in St. Thomas, I loved it, but um, it was amazing. I mean, we did amazing productions, and, and, and I got better, and I learned the system better, but the first one we did, The Odd Couple, and 12 people were in the audience. By, by the end of it, we did Little Shop of Horrors and Jesus Christ Superstar with a full band, and people were cheering, and you know, people were lined up outside, and it was bringing theater to that little place, and it was beautiful. But throughout the rehearsal process, I had to fire, not fire people, because they were you know, community theater actors working for free, but ask people not to come, because they wouldn't show up on time. And at the very least, like, I have that standard being a L.A., New York kind of actor, like, just show up on time. But not even that, I would be in the theater, which was connected. There was a bar next door, and I knew if I walked out, my actors, 15 minutes into rehearsal, would be there at the bar finishing a drink. And I'm like, guys, it's 15 minutes until... We're, we're 15 minutes late for rehearsal. Can we get in there? And they go, yeah, let me finish this beer. And then they order another one, bring it into rehearsal. If I lose it on them and say, like, what are you doing? They're like... You're right, what am I doing? And they walk right out that same door they came in. So I had to find the way to deal with it and deal with managing my expectations where I've always my whole life worked with very professional, very amazing people, even if I wasn't getting paid super professional things and had to be a professional waiter at the same time or dog watcher, you know, things like that. So, um, yeah, it's really made me question whether Los Angeles is the place that I will stay and whether I can find a satisfying level um, of creative interaction and, uh, you know, 
hopefully something that can be shown and shared with the community um, that's at a level that at least meets what satisfies me. It doesn't have to be as good as things that we might be able to do here. It might be 10 times better too, but, uh, but I want to establish myself in LA and I want, I want to make movies now. <laughs> you know, I've kind of moved out of place, so. Um, and this is the right place to make movies. You can get things and do you I, think, I don't know. Do you think actors, do you think we judge ourselves harshly and we, and, and what we tend to do is, is we think, oh no, if we do that, that would be a step down. Like, do we, do we have those thoughts? Yeah, I think I worry about what my, not my closest friends, because they would all know and my family would all know, but the people that, and I don't know why I'm beholden to, to their opinions or anything, but if I came back from LA and New York and was like, I'm gonna move to uh, Oroville and I'm gonna teach junior high theater there, that they would assume I failed, even though that might be exactly what I wanted to be doing. And even know? though they... Don't, don't matter. Don't matter. Like, this is the therapy part of the interview, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should recline. I should lay down and don't put a pillow you, on don't my you face. Don't you recline. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so this is... The podcast is called Take Fountain. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's because I love that Betty Davis joke where, where, where he says... What's the fastest way to get to Hollywood. Right, and she says Take Fountain. And, and of course, I love the, the other side of that, that we all want a straight route through. We want to go headshots, real agent, manager, credits, book, tick, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's like expecting to have a smooth drive around LA. Sure. So the fountains backed up half the time anyway. It's like one lane in Hollywood. Right. It doesn't make any sense. I didn't know that it was famous for other things before it's, the interview. Can you do oh, your rap oh, thing? Oh yeah. So you, uh, when I found out your, uh, I take fountain. So it reminded me of a Mickey Avalon song, uh, and Mickey Avalon is a really dirty rapper that I shouldn't even uh, know about because I'm classier than that. But uh, yeah, go, you want you want me to do it for you? Oh yeah. All right. So. I can't rem I, m I might mess up some of the lyrics, but um, so the whole thing goes, dear mom, dear old dad, and I'm gonna do it like a monologue instead of No, <laughs> I want you to rap it. So, okay, so dear mom, dear old dad, I can't tell you all the fun I had. I've been up, down, round and round. I ain't stopped for a year and a half now. Class clown, but nobody laughing. Avalon, bought it on the plastic. Cotton traffic, slow as molasses. I'll take fountain and get there fastest. Boom. No, then it goes on while a black crackhead tranny licks my ass crack in the back of a black Trans Am with a crack tranny. Black, your shit is whack. So am I when I'm drunk and high, but it doesn't seem to matter because kids still vibe. Ching, 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 give me big diamond rings and I'll walk down the street like a white Jay-Z. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> you asked for it. You did it, you yeah, got through it. It influenced But, you know, so, so I think, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not a, it's not a direct route. You know, you can always expect some hiccups along the way. And there are some things that you know are going to happen. You know, it's going to take a while to get booked, and you know that you're not going to be, you know, you know, you know that aspect of it, right? But okay. in your case, you a got married, and uh -huh. then you had a very serious scooter accident. Sure. So let's... Can you say motorcycle? Motor... <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it was a scooter. It was a scooter, but I call it a motorcycle. It's more dramatic. Okay. I'm, I'm of the theater. It was a, it was a scooter. Um, so let's, let's... First of all, let's talk about, about your marriage, because... Sure. You know, uh, you married, 
and you now have a, a child, a beautiful two-year-old little boy. Three. He three. just turned three in March. Really? Yeah, he's grown so fast. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's a huge responsibility. Had you thought that that you were going to do that or, or did you have a timeline on your life? Uh, I always knew I wanted to be a dad and I always knew I wanted to have a wife. Um, and the timeline thing really went away very quickly because the way I done I mean, I wanted to, I was thinking I was going to marry my first love in high school. We'd date all through high school and then, you know, but I stayed, I, I think we stayed together for two and a half years. Then my next girlfriend, two and a half years. My next girlfriend, five years or something, you know, I was, uh, in between I, I dated, but then I'd find the person that I was like, I really like this person and we would just stay together for a long time and then we'd eventually break up. Sometimes like I thought I loved them, but maybe I was too young or I wanted to be established more or something like that. And my last major girlfriend before I got married, I was with for five years and I just couldn't pull the trigger and she was an amazing girl. And, and I just, I think I was so frustrated with LA and myself that I wasn't satisfied to be a husband. I wasn't qualified to be a husband maybe. And then I you know, moved to New York and all this other stuff happened. So then I met my wife in New York and uh, we dated super casually. We had a great time. I met her at, at the Brooklyn Museum on my birthday. And it was a surprise and it was special and we have photos of the night and it was like, this person was really awesome and, and I knew she was awesome. And we were married eight months later. You know, many people I speak to, they're like, I'll get married when I've got this or done that. I'll have a child when we have this in place. It's like all of these building blocks have to be in place. But right. you, you've, you've separated all of that. She, you've she not made it that. dependent, did she? She, okay. she? She's very influential on that because before I think I was very much like, once I have this much money in the bank, then I'm, and, or this, this type of career path or something like that, then I'm allowed to get married. But... Um, with her, it was like, let's just do this and see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well, we'll get it annulled in a year. And we'll go our separate ways and we had a good time, you know. And that first year of marriage was awesome. And, and we just kept, this guy kept growing in front of us. And we just said, let's go on this adventure. Let's go on that adventure. And we hadn't had a child, so we could. So we booked it to St. Thomas. And, you know, we didn't make a lot of money, but we went to the beach every single day. And that, that was really important to us at the time. And we were big fish in a smaller pond, um, bigger fish, not, not huge, but uh, we, we were having a great time. So, and then coming back to LA, it was great, the same thing. Then, um, same thing with having a child, like we kept thinking like, we'll talk about it in a year. And then we decided to talk about it one time and then we were just super lucky. And I know, you know, we started trying and we got pregnant right away. So that was wonderful. And we were like, okay, so we're gonna do this. We hadn't financially secured much more. We hadn't built up our careers in other ways. She was freelancing as a graphic designer. I was auditioning and working as a waiter. Um, and uh, then he came and he's the most wonderful thing in the world and he's all that matters and we'll spend all the money we have to make his life as good as it, we can possibly make it. Um, so, you're, so you're married? Mm-hmm and you've got this beautiful child mm -hmm. and you're auditioning and Annette's a graphic designer and it's all wonderful and then... And then I got in this major horrific motorcycle accident. Okay. <laughs> it was a, so I was, the scooter to put that to rest was just a, it was a 150cc uh, uh, genuine buddy 
Saint-Tropez is the kind of scooter. And it's like, it's like a Vespa. It's like the American version of a cheap, cheap Vespa, basically. Um, and yeah, I was going, I was cruising down to a job to be a, uh, a, a working at Mattel at a toy fair, which paid really well, a short, short-term actor gig where you kind of explain toys and stuff. And I was driving in the morning and uh, a girl was making a left turn and I was going straight through that same intersection. She didn't see me, and I hit the front of her car, and I, I flipped over the hoods, ripped my visor off my uh, motorcycle helmet, smashed my bike to shit, and uh, broke, broke, I think, 12 bones. A um, bunch of bones in my hands, five ribs, my uh, collarbone, and I broke my femur in two places uh, on my left femur. and. When that happened, uh, they had to cut my leg open uh, so that the swelling wouldn't compartmentalize my wound, uh, and that would cut off the circulation to my leg and maybe have to have it amputated or something. So for a month, I was in the hospital with a, a rugby ball size wound on my leg um, that they had to clean every two days and replace the the vacuum that sucked all the nastiness off of it and kept it sterile until... How old was Brooklyn, your son, at this time? He was six months. Wow. Yeah, so six months after he was born. Um, and because he was less than a year old and hadn't had all his vaccinations in hospitals or filthy places, I was in the hospital for a full month with that open wound on my leg. Um, and I got to see him four times because it was the only times I could like get in a wheelchair and go downstairs and leave. He came into the room like twice in a month. I saw him four times in a month in, when he was six months old. Horrible. And, and to expect my wife to be dealing with raising a child at six months, trying to figure out there's nobody making money now. So she has to figure out how to make money, raise that child, um, and deal with the bureaucracy of a hospital, which is nuts. The two weeks into my hospital stay, at UCLA, and everybody was wonderful. Our healthcare system is completely fucked, uh, and and hopefully things are getting better. But uh, I was two weeks in. We had an Israeli uh, insurance company, so they're basically twelve hours different. So they could never talk directly to the people because their their day shifts are our night shifts, and so nobody would ever communicate. They'd leave messages back and forth, and I'm on um, oxycodone or. It depends on what time it was, what 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 crazy um, pain drug I was on. I was on morphine at the beginning, so. Um, and they'd come in, and she, she came with my, my whatever case manager, whoever it is at the hospital, came in and said, You're, you've been here for 12 days. Your bill right now, and that's not including today, is... And she's like, it's going to be $240,000. But that doesn't include today because we're having problems with your insurance. And I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> like, I, I can't get out of this bed. I can only watch... Is that what they were threatening? To, pawn to, stars. To tip you out? They, they want their money. They want to get whatever money they can, and they want to figure it out. And they're saying your insurance is having problems. It's a different country's insurance that we can't figure it out. And, and I'm like, why have I been paying health insurance to this other company for all these you know, years, and thank God I had it, thank God I had auto insurance and things like that, because um, by the end of it, my bill would have been $750,000 for a month in the hospital, maybe more, and the two operations I had, and uh, by the end of it, we got it worked out, but it was all on my wife to do that while I wasn't much help, and I couldn't, go, you know, and also the reviewing what had happened in the accident, I couldn't leave the hospital, um, I had the initial police report 
that me and the other girl filled out. And then I spent a month in the hospital with nothing that I could do about it. And if there was su surveillance footage of the intersection or anything like that, I wasn't in any state to deal with that. So all of that was just being layered upon my wife, who's a foreigner in a foreign land. You know, English is her second language, and she was absolutely amazing again. And, and by the end of it, we worked it out with the insurance company, and we paid more than our deductible because you pay your deductible, and then there's all sorts of other things that don't mm. fit in underneath it. So we, How we long paid did a lot. It, are, you, are you right now? I would, physically? Yeah. Um, I, I can hike. 15 miles, we've done it in the last month. I can play sports, I can do things. Um, you know, it's hard because with this break, now this is going on close to three years that I've been out of the hospital. Um, I don't know, 80, 90% maybe. I feel pretty good, I can go to the gym, I can do all these things. I'm uncomfortable when I sleep because of certain things. Uh, if it's cold, I, it hasn't been cold in a year, so I can't tell if I'm healed from that or if uh, when it gets cold again, if it ever gets cold again on this planet, then whether it will ache like it used to. Um, I, I spent a lot of time doing physical therapy that I think got it back to it, but I haven't, I, I've also gotten three years older. I'm in my mid thirties now, mid late thirties. And, and I don't Come know. On, it's, it's, it's Hollywood, you're 25 plus, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and to not know whether it's just that I've, through that whole thing, your eating habits go down, your exercise habits go down, and then trying to get back up there while you're constantly aging every day is hard to figure out what it is. I'm not the same person I was when I was 33 and the accident happened, but I'm maybe 100% or close to it about the person I can be right now. When I asked you, are you over it, are you recovered, and you, you said, what, physically? What else could I have meant? <laughs> uh, financially, mentally, um... Yeah, I mean, like, I, I had PTSD for a long time, um, subconscious stuff that I didn't understand, and, like, I don't mean any disrespect to the people, like, in the military who have a different type of PTSD, but the fear in a car or wanting to be in control, being scared of being the passenger, you know, slowly growing through those things. Um, physically, as in my body is healed from the wounds, but maybe I, you know, I'm... When, when I went into the hospital, I weighed 180 pounds or about that. When I was there for a month, I went down to 160, 165. I lost, I was maybe 185, so I, went, I lost 25 pounds in a month, which is the craziest diet you could ever do. Just get in a motorcycle accident if you want to lose 25 pounds. But then I couldn't do any walking for the next six months, really. I was assisted or cane or crutches or wheelchair. And then... Uh, in that time, while I wasn't able to do physical activity, I, I gained 30 pounds back. So I ended up weighing like 190 pounds. And I've actually gone up from there. I weigh more than, I can't say, I can't say all this on an actor podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I weigh 63150. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm up around 200 pounds. And uh, it's harder for me to work that stuff off and, and things, you know, that that type of, I mean, that should be doing Raging Bull or something. If I'm an actor who's going to lose 25 pounds in a month and then gain 30 pounds the next month, that's that's. It's really scary. It's really life-stepping in, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, the, it's yeah. the things that you never expect that just throw everything. Yeah, yeah. I would have been the next Brad Pitt by now if I hadn't gotten in this accident, for right, sure. You and me both. Sure. We both, we could have been twin, uh, Siamese twins yeah. of Brad Pitt. Mm -hmm. If this had continued, so yeah. So what's the what's the what's the future? What are you thinking at the moment? Um, so like I said, I've been writing a lot. 
um, and producing more and more, and I'd like to do that. You've had some success at festivals, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. We we just made two short films, um, Out with a Bang and and uh, and The God Chair, which I wrote with my writing partner Mike Peebler. I have a few different writing partners, and we're all kind of pushing little things forward. Um, and this was great. We produced these two films. Um, they're shorts, and they've played at festivals, Cinequest, um, the LA Film Festival. Um, they've won some awards, uh, and and they were huge learning experiences, and that's what we really wanted to do going through them. Um, and I feel like now they're kind of um, proof that we can carry through with an idea. Mm. So since then, I've been writing more features and pilots and series and pitches and treatments um, in the hopes that... Do you do that something every day? Almost guaranteed. Almost guaranteed. Um, it's not like I have a schedule for it, but... When, when you have free time, I can't sit around and do nothing. I call up friends or they call me up. I have at least three writing partners that I really like working with. Um, and yeah, one of them or the other, I usually will at least have a check-in with or we'll do some work on it or I'll do work on, on the scripts on my own. And if it's not that, then I'll be doing something else to kind of, I try to work on my career at least hours every day, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about it, even if it's something like this, having a conversation with you is mm -hmm. that time, so. Um, but yeah, I try to create content constantly. I have I have huge stacks of things that we can dig into as soon as somebody's ready. So <laughs> uh, our proof of concept was hopefully these couple of shorts, and then somebody can help us uh, find those can help us find funding for these features that we're writing now. And we have written we have a new feature that we're hoping to produce in the next year. Um, and I hope that you know getting into writing was one of the things was to promote me as an actor too, write for myself and produce for myself because I was very frustrated waiting in line at a commercial audition or something and not, and, and not thinking that I was right as I looked around the room and knowing that it was based off of so many things that I didn't have control of. Um, whereas as a writer, you have so much control. You can't necessarily, you know, guarantee that it's going to be successful or anything like that, but at least I did what's there. I did what I wanted to do and now I can try to pull it off or sell it or make it myself. Um, whereas an actor, you're like, I don't know. You know, I don't know, I just hope. <laughs> you know, and the dream role that I think I'd be great at playing, I'm not gonna get those opportunities until I build my resume more as an actor. You know, I, 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 I gotta get really good at saying like, here's your coffee, here's your coffee. You know, just like, <laughs> say it, make it believable. Not too much. Not, here's your coffee. You know, just be so real. I, I said, a friend of mine said, said last night um, that he always plays the drunk. And, uh, and I said, I always get the catfish or the bitch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, you know me. That's not me. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not Shit. at all. Shit. Well, that, am I a barista? Am I, am I just inherently a barista? I'm very good at waiting tables, so maybe that's what maybe I am. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe we just have to. They already made the film Waiting, and it was brilliant. Have well, the one it? about wine that did really well. Sideways? Sideways, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just need. So, yeah, I need to write those. That's, that's the other problem, is that since I've started writing, Sometimes my ideas grow to different sizes than what my self as an actor would even be cast in anyway. I <clears throat> so you need to be able to step back. Yeah. And give it to someone else. Exactly. After I've done all that, and then I'm and then I'm a writer producer, and it's very satisfying. I love being a writer producer, but I wanted to write myself into this, but no, it'd be better if we got a name for it because then more people would notice. Or no, it'd be better if we got somebody who's 
in their late 40s or in their early 20s or in you know I'm just it makes it has more weight if it's this and that so I write myself out of a script that I started because I wanted to give myself something to do I wanted to create projects and content for myself and then it usually turns out better than what maybe I could have done but uh, I need to get better about writing stuff for myself well I need to <laughs> I need to let you go so that you can write some more stuff that's right yeah Thank you, <laughs> yeah, thank thank you, so you Mark Felner for your time. Such a pleasure. You've been listening to Take Fountain with Ella James. For more, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.